You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. You can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the final chapter in Paul's second letter to Timothy. And after this message today, we only have one more week left of the book, and therefore one more week left of the preaching cohort, and we will all be glad to have our regular preacher back in the pulpit when that time comes. Um, but I, before we get there, I wanted to share my gratitude to Pastor Ben and to the other elders and all the other leaders in our church and really everyone, everyone in this church for the way that you have continued to help turn Oak Hill into a fertile soil for growing new preachers. Teaching God's Word is a gift of the Spirit, but it's also a gift that that needs to be exercised. It needs to be worked on, and it can be a difficult and awkward one to grow in. And um, I'm grateful that we have a receptive and loving church family um, who's who's ready to be a part of that. So on behalf of all the whole preaching cohort, thank you for your your kind and your constructive encouragements and your feedbacks. Um, If you have some of those that you still haven't shared, go encourage those brothers, whether it's something uh, that's just a blanket encouragement or something that you want to see them grow in. They they long for that. Uh, Reach out to them. We don't claim to know what the future is going to bring as we're trying to raise up new preachers, um, but we know for certain that this world is not going to need fewer faithful preachers. It's going to need more. So, uh, so to, to get our minds started on wh- where we're going to be in, in 2 Timothy, um, I want to just share something with you. Heidi and I have just this past week marked our fourth wedding anniversary. And we're excited about that. And I got it. Thank you. I got to tell you that she is just the best. <laughs> um, I tell her all the time that marrying her was the best thing I ever did. Um, and I, I pray that the Lord would keep me from boasting in this moment, but our marriage is sweet. It's really, really sweet. And part of the reason for that um, is that we learned early how important it is to communicate with each other and to fight hard for clarity and not just rely on assumptions when we share words with each other. Uh, one example, in our first year of marriage, every so often, maybe like maybe once every three months, Heidi would return home from working at the North Carolina Boys Academy, and that's a teen challenge program for adolescent boys who have made a big mess of their lives. And she would come home from working with those boys, and she would say, I just feel kind of blah today. And I would respond, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. How much water have you had today? Um, what, did you, what did you eat for breakfast? And we were both completely unaware that we were operating on different definitions of what feeling blah meant. Because I would sometimes tell her that I'm feeling blah. And she seemed, when I would tell her that, to be overly concerned about me and would try to do like over-the-top sweet things to cheer me up, which almost got annoying at times. And we had this unspoken thing for a little while, but my, my definition of blah was entirely physical. I'm saying, when I'm feeling blah, I'm saying I'm, I'm vaguely uncomfortable, maybe I'm a little nauseous, I have a bit of a headache, I just don't really know why, I just kind of feel gross physically. It's, it's usually dehydration is what I'm feeling that it that connects to the feeling of blah. So that's why I asked her about water. Uh, but her definition of blah had nothing to do with how she feels physically. It was entirely emotional or spiritual feeling of vague uneasiness when things just don't feel right, and I don't know why. On those days, 
it's usually because she had just now spent long hours trying to serve and care for and counsel 12 to 15 teenage boys who were stuck in deep patterns of self-destructive sin. And that can make you feel blah. And so she comes home and tells me that she needs not a glass of water. She needs to be reminded of truth, to be reminded that she's loved, that things are going to be okay. So we had, to, <laughs> we had to get to the bottom of that. So now, after we've had that clarity conversation, when one of us is feeling blah, the other one asks, my kind of blah or your kind of blah? Because <laughs> defining those terms and refusing to simply just rely on assumptions, it's made all the difference in the way that we relate to one another. So this morning, as we open chapter 4, we need to do away with some assumptions we need to clear the air about some misconceptions about what certain Bible words mean and make sure we're all under the same flag when we're talking about these words. We need to really define those terms. And when we do, more than just for head knowledge's sake, I pray that the Spirit will do a work in us that makes all the difference in the way that we relate to Him and to one another. So we're nearing the end of this letter. And by now, you've heard all of its major themes, all the, the main things that Paul's trying to tell Timothy. He's pretty much already told them to him. He's just elaborating and adding more emphasis now. And Paul wants Timothy to be reassured that the faith that guides him is the real deal. This is genuine faith that is in you, Timothy. And that faith can withstand all the persecution that this world can throw at you. And that's very good because Paul also warns him that persecution is coming and, in fact, is already here. And he says that the persecution that's going to get aimed at you, Timothy, it's going to come in hot, and it's going to come in hottest from people who call themselves believers in Jesus, but in fact actually promote themselves and their ideologies. So that's one of the main things that, that Paul's telling Timothy. And he reminds Timothy that no matter what the opposition, no matter how hard or how, how painful ministry gets, no matter what the situation is, God's word is a rock-solid foundation for you. It contains everything necessary to grow into full-fledged maturity in Christ. It doesn't matter that you're only in your 20s. It doesn't matter that you haven't, you haven't been everywhere that Paul has been. You have all that you need. Timothy, you're supposed, you're supposed to fan into flame. The flame is already there. You have a spark. You have an ember. It's burning. It's alive. Fan it further into flame, this gift that was given to you by God. You've already been equipped. You have all that you need. The only thing that you need to do now, Timothy, is remain faithful and focused on the ministry that God has put in front of you. And that, we're going to keep coming back to that today. That question, okay, sure, I, I'm on, I want to be faithful. I get that that's the point. Yes, I want to be focused. What is the ministry? That's our question today. What is this ministry? You see, one of the reasons that pastors, you don't find pastors typically very, very often preaching 2 Timothy or any of the other so-called pastoral epistles is that there's this widely held misconception, we've talked about it already, this misconception that these epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, they're just for church leadership. That's all they're for. You only need to pull these out if you're just a regular member of the congregation. You only pull these ones out if you're looking for a new pastor because you know that's where the qualifications for an elder and a deacon are in, in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And you only pull out 2 Timothy if you yourself are in church leadership uh, or if you're a pastor or if you're a deacon because these are the apostles' words to a young pastor. If I'm just an average Christian, I need not open it. I, 
I'll go reread Romans. I'll go reread Colossians or Ephesians or, or any of the other places where the gospel is really clearly laid out because I know that's for me. That's all I need. I'll leave the pastoral epistles to the pastors. Now, I don't want to be the preacher that tells you that that's not all you need, that the clear picture of the gospel is not all you need. By all means, study Romans for the 50th, for the 100th time. But study 2 Timothy as well. Long after this sermon series is over, go back. It's a short book. Go back. Study 2 Timothy as well. Because this is a book where all of the glorious theology of Romans, of Colossians, of Ephesians, all the glorious truth about who God is, who Jesus is, what the gospel is, all that truth comes to life in real flesh and blood, rubber meets road kind of stuff. Come back and look at this. Study this. Study how the power of the gospel can be lived out in the life of one unsteady, imperfect believer. That's Timothy. You might not be a pastor. Are you an unsteady, imperfect believer? Yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. We all are, and we need this. You're in good company. This book is for you, and just like Timothy, you need to, I need to remain faithful and focused. That's been our series vision for the book of 2 Timothy. Our series vision would be that the Lord would make us, that is, make us, transform us, change us, into a church that is faithful and focused to fulfill the ministry to which he has called us. Again, that's our question for the day. What is that ministry? We've learned a lot about how to be faithful, how to be focused, what that looks like. But what is the ministry, one, that Timothy is being called to? What is the ministry that our church is being called to? That's our series vision. And what is the ministry that you individually are being called to? Those are three different questions, but by the end of today, I hope that we'll all see that those answers to those three questions are awfully similar. Let's read. We'll read our whole text this morning, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Our big idea from the text this morning is this. The same Lord who ensures your future victory has called you to a radical present ministry. Fulfill it. The same Lord who ensures, who guarantees your future victory has called you to a radical present ministry, and you must fulfill it. 
So we've used the word ministry a lot already today. And that's the first term that we're going to need to define before we go any further. We've already said that 2 Timothy, it is not just for pastors. So maybe you have an inkling as to what I'm getting at by defining this word. Uh, Where we use it a lot of times today in church culture started being used that way around the mid-1800s. There were a lot of different types of churches, especially the Church of England, started using this word minister to refer to a member of the clergy, someone who's acting in official capacity on behalf of a church. So for the last 250 years or so, we've had people in the culture thinking that there's this distinction between ministers and the rest of the congregation. And therefore, ministry is often associated with the work of ministers. Ministry is a thing for ministers. Regular Christians, believers, uh, we're, we're the flock, we're the congregation, we're something else, and the things we do are something else. That's the, that's the framework that is in, in the culture, even, even when our nation was a little bit more of a Christian nation than it is now, even then, that was that was in the backs of the minds of people as they think on this word, minister and ministry. But that's not the biblical definition of these things. That's just a, a relatively recent trend in the way that we use that word. So let's go back to, even just in English, the rawest definition of that word, minister and ministry, before we started to apply it to church offices and it became what it, what it often is today. Just in English, the rawest definition of the word minister, a nice A nice synonym for that is servant. Minister means servant. And guess what? Ministry just means service. Most specifically, ministry is service done under the authority of another. That's why in the United Kingdom, uh, in in England, they they still use that term to refer to big branches of their government. What we would call like a a cabinet member or a, a... a leader of a department, the Department of Defense, they have a minister of defense. They have a minister of transportation. They are the lead servant. They're just a servant under the authority of their government. And so in this case, servant, minister, is just someone who serves under a, an authority that is above them. So that certainly applies to a believer, does it not? That changes things. That's no longer just the clergy over here and us other believers who get to do whatever we want over there. No, we, we all claim the role of servant, do we not? Maybe minister gives you the heebie-jeebies, but servant doesn't. So what is your ministry that Paul is asking about here, that Paul is telling us about? Here's a definition that we're going to work with for today. Your ministry is the service that God has called you to based on who he has made you to be. Your ministry is the service that God has called you to based on who he has made you to be. And again, that applies to every believer, not just ministers. And what we mean by who he's made you to be, who he's made you to be, who you are, who who you even were before the Lord met you, where did you come from? Who are your parents? What are your strengths, your weaknesses, your likes, your dislikes? Every single demographic part of you. Are you a father? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a child? All the things, all the spheres of your life are who he's made you to be. But then, he has remade you. 
The Lord, if you, are, if you belong to him, if you have placed your faith in Christ, he has made you something that you were not. So based on what he has done to transform you into something that you're not, based on that, there are some things that are called of you, things that the Lord expects and rightly, rightly demands of you, things that you should joyously do because of what he has done for you, who he has made you to be. And on top of that, who he made you to be before that, all of your giftings, all of your leanings, all of the things that make you you, God wants you to leverage all of it. That's your ministry. All of it. All of your life is your ministry because your life is defined by union to and service to and discipleship under Christ. That definition applies to all of us. So Paul has a lot to say about this ministry that Timothy's been called to. And like we said, his ministry, even though he's not exactly the same as us, we're not all pastors of a small church plant in the early church, we're not exactly the same as him, but his ministry we'll find is very similar, very, very similar to just the ministry that every believer has. And Paul's going to at least define three things about the work, the service of a minister of Jesus. And first we'll see, Paul says, it is unpopular work. And we'll start in verse 3 here. You may be a bit puzzled why we're starting in verse 3. Um, and that's because if we didn't, we would have to re, uh, rerun over the same ground. Um, and here's why. Paul uses what's known as a chiastic structure here. Um, Pastor Ben's talked about that at least once before. But as a refresher, a chiasm is just a way of laying out information for teaching purposes that's also beautiful and memorable. The way it works is you start saying one thing, you change the topic a little bit, and you change it one more time, and maybe you're getting close to what's the main crux of what you're trying to say. And then in reverse order, you hit those same topics again so that you start and end around the same place. And it's laid out in this, this half-triangle shape that, again, once you notice it, it can be pretty beautiful to see how it was laid out in that way. So if I started in verse 1, I would need to also then talk about verse 8, and then we wouldn't get there. We're just going to start at the tip of that triangle and work our way back, and we'll, we'll end on verses 1 and 8. So we're also jumping into verse 3 here because here at the crux of it is the roughest part. This is the weightiest, heaviest, most difficult part for Timothy to read, and that makes sense because the main thrust of what Paul's been saying this whole time has often had to do with suffering and opposition. Those were major topics of the last three sermons that we've heard. He says in verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Think about that statement. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. In a way, that kind of just isn't saying much. <laughs> In a way, that kind of describes every age, doesn't it? I mean, you can go all the way back to Cain. Ever since Cain, ever since the very first baby was ever born, there have been people who do not endure sound teaching. There have been people who don't listen to God's truth. So what is, what is he saying here? And, wh and what is this sound teaching? Well, specifically, this is teaching that accords with the Bible, accords with the Word of God. And most clearly, at this point, this is teaching that, that accords with the interpretive lens through which we understand the Bible, that being Jesus Christ, his person, his work, who he is, what he's done. All, we know that all of the Old Testament 
Those are true events that, that, were, that were written down for our benefit, but all of them, the Lord is slowly, progressively revealing more and more information about what this coming salvation will look like. The entire Old Testament is laser-focused on the coming of Jesus. And then Jesus comes, and he lives, and he teaches about himself and about God the Father and about the Spirit, and he accomplishes his work of salvation. He does it. It is finished. It's the linchpin of all of history. And then after those four Gospels that we read that tell that story, what's the rest of the New Testament about? Nothing brand new and different. It's all looking back, gesturing back to that time, that moment, that person, Jesus himself. The entire Bible is hinged on Jesus. And so if you are teaching something, you're teaching something about God's Word, teaching something about God, and it is not centered on Christ, on his exaltation, on his work, on what he's done, on giving him glory, whatever it is, it's not sound. Not sound teaching. Sound just means together, healthy, whole. And so there will be people, Paul says, there will be people that don't endure sound teaching. Again, that's, that seems strange. There have always been people who have rejected the truth, rejected the teaching of God, whatever state in revelation and the progressive revelation of God's word that we're at. But Paul goes out of his way to point out that in this age, he says to Timothy, in this age, the church age, in these last days before Jesus comes back, there's something particular about the religious thinking in this age that is defined by this, people not being willing to sit under sound teaching. Paul's saying essentially that that the concrete, the cement for the foundation of the church has been poured and it's almost dry. And in this next season, for however long it lasts, you're going to see this more and more. People are not going to want to listen. From the early church all the way through the, the big evangelistic uh, expeditions of the 19th and 20th centuries, when people went into the heart of Africa and China and India and, and everywhere else, that they went and took the gospel to places that had never gone before. Through all of those, you can trace out this, this same pattern. Wherever the gospel was preached loudly and clearly in a place that it had never gone before, powerful things happened. And you see converts. You see converts. And there's, these are people who have just been blindsided by the beauty and the grace of Jesus. They'd never even comprehended that a God would come down to them, that he would get himself dirty and die for them. That blows their minds. That explodes their categories. And so they turn from their worthless dead idols and they trust in Jesus. That's an amazing thing that happens whenever something new is happening here, when the gospel is going to a place where it's never been. But what can tend to happen after the dust starts to settle? in those cultures. What happens a generation later, two generations later? What happens after Christianity stops being this wild new thing, this wild new way of seeing the world and living your life? These wild, crazy, faith-filled people who I just saw for the first time over there, what happens when it turns into that building down on the corner, that institution, that and you fill in the blank of all the memories that people fill in, and they, and they change their assumptions about what it is. What happens when the dust settles? Every time that you open your Bible and try to teach something to someone, you are not greeted with the results of Peter's sermon at Pentecost when 3,000 souls are added to the Lord's number. Why not? 
for this reason. In this age, in the church age, more and more people will no longer endure sound teaching. And instead, going further, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Let's think about that sentence too. It's a bit of an odd sentence. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. It's a bit of an odd thing to accumulate. Uh, Most of the time, people normally accumulate what? Stuff. They accumulate like useful things. Like what have you accumulated in a silo? (laughs) Something useful. Food, grain, silage. Uh, You accumulate in your bank account. Something that's useful. Something that you can get something done with. Or what else can you tend to accumulate? Uh, What does your closet accumulate? Stuff, junk, things that you saw some value in. You didn't throw it away, but here it is. Stuff, whether it's collectibles or just stuff that you chose to hold on to, you accumulate things. You accumulate things that either you have use for, you think that they're useful, or you just like them. You just want them. They make you feel good for whatever reason. And that's exactly what's going on here. Timothy is being warned about our current era of religious thinking. It started back then, but it continues today. This is the commercialized, consumerist religious mindset. The the age of cafeteria Christianity, it can sometimes be called. All the things that are true about Christianity, all the things about the way of a disciple, all the things that are true about a follower of Christ are laid out like a buffet, and someone with an empty tray walks by and they say, ah, uh, self, uh, self-worth and, and confidence and, and value and affirmation and good feelings, yes, we'll take a good heaping helping of that. Um, moral superiority, thank you very much, I'll take two scoops. And, and all the other things that are, that are positive and enjoyable about the Christian life, they select those, but suffering, repentance, conviction, ooh, accountability, ooh, no, you can leave those there. I have an aversion. I have an allergy to that. I'm not going to take any of that, thanks. This is collecting teachers to suit your own passions. This age that Paul's talking about, It was alive and well for a long time, but today we have the latest and greatest model of it. The internet was just tailor-made for this type of a mindset. It's never been easier to seek out and accumulate teachers for yourself, to suit your own passions. And in fact, now it's never been easier. So if a teacher that that you're listening to, that you enjoy, says something you don't like, says something that's hard for you to grapple with, something you don't enjoy, you can just boop. You just mute him, close him, never go to his website again, and find yourself ten others that say what you want to, to hear, what your ears are itching to hear. It's very easy in our day and age. So the culture has done this, and the culture is doing this. And Paul's telling Timothy, this is only going to get worse. It's only going to get harder and harder. Now that the gospel has started to go out, now that people have heard this message, they've heard it once, they've heard it twice, the third time, they won't be so pleasant to you. The fourth, fifth, 10,000th time, it's going to get harder and harder. Their hearts will get harder and harder. So, Paul continues, he says, So always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Let's quickly summarize what he's saying here. Always be sober-minded. Don't fool around, Timothy. Don't let your guard down. You can't afford to fool around about this. This is important work. It must be done. You can't let your guard down. You have no off days. Be sober-minded at all times. Endure suffering, he says. Again, he says people, will, people are going to dismiss you and your message. You're going to be scorned. You're going to be looked down on. They will not like it. They will hate you for it. It will make you unpopular in the culture around you. Get used to that. Know that it's coming and endure it. Bear up under it. By a strength that isn't coming from you, bear up under this suffering because it's expected and it's okay. Do the work of an evangelist, he says. Now, what is an evangelist? It's someone who evangelizes, someone who spreads the, the, the evangelion, the gospel, someone who shares the gospel, someone who preaches the truth of Jesus. And, and the picture that we often see in sharing the gospel is sowing seeds. Jesus uses this in one of his parables as well. The, the term that, that we talk about for sharing the gospel in this way is broadcast. And before that was a media term, before a TV was ever invented or a radio, this was an agricultural term. You get literally a handful of seed and you cast it out broadly. You broadcast these seeds. And what happens then is some of them will bounce right off. Jesus taught it. Some are hard-packed soil that are not letting it in. But you do the work of breaking up the soil as much as you can. You try to do what you can to prepare it, but ultimately it has to be the Lord's work. You, you do the hard work of hand broadcasting all of this truth of who Jesus is. And then he, he sums that up and sums up this whole, honestly, this whole section. He sums it up in saying, fulfill your ministry. There's that word again. Our big idea was that the same Lord who ensures your future victory has called you to a radical present ministry. By nature of who you are and who the Lord has made you to be, he has called you to a radical ministry right now. The ministry work that was put in front of Timothy was radical in the sense that it went against the grain of the culture. And the same is true for us. Again, even though we're not a pastor, not all of us are pastors in a small church, not all of us are, are carrying the torch of one of the last apostles, but the same is true for us. This ministry work put in front of us is radical. People aren't going to like it. People don't tend to like it. They don't tend to appreciate it when you tell them, no matter how you tell them, when you tell them that the things that they are clinging to, prioritizing, and serving like gods are actually worthless idols that set them up for destruction. People don't like that. People don't like it when you alert them to the reality that money, power, or fame, or sex, or marriage, or their family, or a legacy has become their god. People don't like it when you bring up the fact that maybe petty things like sports or intellectualism, or who's going to win the next election, whatever it is, when you, when you inform them that those things are become their gods and that they are empty and dead and cannot save, people don't like it. They hate it. This is an antagonistic message. Therefore, you don't need to add any antagonism to it when you share it. 
This does not give you license to go stand on a street corner with a big sign and an angry face that's, and a sign that reads, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, and shouting at people as they drive by. This does not give you license to that. Just because this truth offends, in fact, it does the opposite. You do not need to be antagonistic. You need to display this. You need to convey this information, this truth, with gentleness, with pleading, with kindness, with long-suffering. They'll still hate you, no matter how, you, how kindly you say it, but they need to hear it. They need to see their sin if they're ever going to turn to Jesus to save them from it. If they don't see a problem living the way that they are in opposition to the Lord of the universe, if they don't see a problem with that, they won't see a solution in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It'll mean nothing to them. It'll bounce right off. They need to see it. Whether that's your best friend who you've known for years, you finally get up the courage to share this important truth, or whether it's a stranger you meet on the street, at a bus stop, in the deli line, whoever it is, whenever it happens, it has everything in it to offend them, but therefore it has everything in it to get them to see their sin and to turn and trust the Lord. You trust the Spirit to do that work in them, but you faithfully open your mouth. And it's going to make you unpopular. <laughs> it is not going to earn you friends and status in this world. That's the first thing that Paul describes here to Timothy. This work of a minister of Jesus is unpopular work. The second thing we'll see is that it is word work. Verse 2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We know what preaching is because we experience it at least on a weekly basis, maybe even more. Preaching is not merely saying true things about God. It's certainly that. You better not be saying any lies about God if you're trying to preach. But it's not just saying true things about God. Preaching is heralding the word of God announcing what God has said, and then calling your hearers to a response in repentance and faith. That's what preaching is. So my question here is, what, he says, preach the word, be ready, I'm assuming be ready to preach, in season and out of season. What is preaching season? Where on your calendar is preaching season? Um, and when is, therefore, what is, what is not preaching season. Well, here's, here's some things that might categorize being out of season. Uh, maybe unplanned outdoor evangelism. You are preaching to a crowd of people who did not sign up to listen to you. Uh, maybe even a hostile crowd. You go to a place where you know, in fact, there's a gathering of people who are focused around something that is anti-God and preaching there. Ooh, out of season. Those people do not want to hear it, especially. I think that would be out of season preaching. Or maybe a high-pressure situation. You're in a courtroom. You're being put on trial. You're in a nation where it is no longer legal to say the things that you have said. You're being asked to recant those things. That is not preaching in season, friends. That is very much out of season. They are not ready to hear it. Everything seems wrong, except you know you have to open your mouth and preach. Be ready to preach even then, when the stakes are very high, when it's life or death, out of season preaching. So therefore, what is in season? We're doing it right now. 
This is preaching in season. This is preaching when, when you expect, when the fields are already cleared and the rocks are removed and the furrows have been dug and the soil is soft and you're ready to receive it. You've been prepared. That's part of the reason why we sing first, to warm our hearts up, to warm up our affections and focus our thoughts on the Lord to hear from his word. Preaching in season is preaching to an audience that wants to be here. If you're here this morning, I pray that it is not out of habit, out of duty, out of whatever other reason it is. I'm confident that the majority of us at Oak Hill come together and we sit under the teaching of God because we desire to endure sound preaching, sound teaching. We desire to put ourselves up against the knife of the great husbandman, the great gardener who trims away the things in our life that don't need to be there. We do that week after week because we desire it because God has changed us. We long for the season of preaching. That's preaching in season. So, Timothy, be ready for that. Be ready to preach to the people who need to hear it because they love it and they need to be brought further along in their understanding and their, and their love of Jesus. Timothy, certainly be ready for that, but also be ready, Timothy, to preach when you're not wanted. To preach in a situation that they have not called for it, but it's necessary. Be ready for both of those extremes. And so if Timothy needs to be ready to preach in times where it's really not called for, according to them, and times when it's desperately called for, he's called to preach and be ready to preach at every time in between. And so we know that because it's that wide of a, of a window that Paul gives, that preaching can happen anytime. And so our definition of who a preacher is and what preaching is needs to change a little bit. It doesn't require one of these. It doesn't require an open Bible and a captive audience who have agreed to be there. No, preaching, like I said, what did we say preaching is? It's not merely saying true things about God. It's not relaying facts only. It's heralding the word of God, saying what God has said, announcing that to a hearer, and calling them to respond with repentance and faith. That can happen anytime. It's not just for pastors. The answer to this is, if you are a believer, you are a preacher. You may need to write that down and remember it. If you are a believer, you are a preacher. Your work of ministry that God has called you to is primarily word work. This is where the infamous quote from St. Francis of Assisi can come into play. Um, I know a lot of believers who really get mad about this one, but we'll, we'll see, see it even-handedly today. He says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I would argue that if you're going to preach a saving gospel for someone to be able to repent and turn in, in trust and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to open your mouth and you need to use words. However, there is truth in saying that your entire life from the moment you wake up to the moment you put your head on the pillow, every second in between, those are opportunities for you to preach the gospel if you would only see it. If you would only obey the Lord and acknowledge that this ministry that you're being called to is not just something that you sign up for on a piece of paper, on a sign-up genius online, and come and serve at the church. It's not just that. It is everything. It is everything that the Lord has made you to be all the time that you spend at work, at home, parenting your kids, everything in between, it's all your ministry. 
And therefore, it is all an opportunity for word work. All of it is an opportunity for preaching, for opening up God's word and calling for a response. Parents, you need, you need to preach to your kids. That does not mean standing on a soapbox and getting preachy, at least not necessarily. You need to open God's word. Quote it to them, share it with them, teach it to them, show it to them. Show them what the Lord asks of them and demands of them. Show them that the Lord is good and gracious and loving and worthy, demanding even of their love in return. They need to hear that. They need to hear it from you. You need to preach. In that relationship, you need to preach. Spouses, husbands, and wives, your spouse needs to hear you preach. Your spouse needs the words of God coming from you to them. That was ordained by God. That relationship was meant to be a life-giving, life-flowing relationship where the word of God is sharpening and drawing together and pointing to him. Your spouse needs you to preach. Don't just assume it. Don't just assume that they know. Open your mouth. Preach. If you are just an individual, you're untied to these other relationships. You have no kids, maybe you have no spouse, whatever your situation is. If you're an individual person, that's all of us, you need to preach to yourself, to your own soul. You have a constant jabbering in the back of your head, constant self-talk. And you have, by the Spirit's power, you have control over that. You can tell it to shut its mouth and start reading a different script. You can tell it to read God's word and preach those over yourself. You can call your own soul to obedience and faith. In fact, you need it. You need to preach to yourself. If you're a member of a church, your brothers and sisters need you to preach. I say this often as we, as we lead worship, as we sing, you're preaching to me. As you are responding the same truths that I'm responding. We're in this together. We're agreeing on this truth. And you sing it loudly. That preaches a word to me that this is worthwhile, that we're, that we're accomplishing something, that we are, this, this future hope that we have is not in vain, that this is real. That reminder comes as we preach to one another, as we agree on the truth of Scripture. We remind each other of those things. If you're a believer, you need to preach to one another in gospel community. And if you're a believer and you're a member of a church, you need to preach to your preacher. You need to preach to your leaders. You need to remind them. You need to encourage them, exhort them with the truths of Scripture. Pastor Ben has said multiple times as we've been in this book, this is not the first time this year that Ben has opened 2 Timothy. He goes back to it regularly to fan into flame the gift that was given to him. The words of God are life for him. And he needs you to share that with him too. I need that. Your leaders need that. If you ever have the, the thought to send an encouraging text to somebody and, and share scripture with them, always do it. <laughs> always do it. I think first and foremost on, on this subject of Alden Bowman, who is so faithful, um, there are quite a few, if I ask for hands, I'm not going to, but if I ask for hands, there'll be quite a few men in this church who would raise their hand and say, Alden texts me almost every day what he's reading in God's Word. And he is just grabbing a handful of seed and just <laughs> throwing it out there. He'll follow up with you if you want to have a conversation. 
but he's just doing that. He's just encouraging you. He's just washing the scriptures over you. Do that. Do that as much as the Spirit gives you impulse. It's not just for pastors. Preaching is not just for pastors. This whole work that you do is word work. There are specific ways that Paul expects this word work to look for Timothy. This first word here, I guess we're doing a lot of defining. This first word here is reproof. And that word means reproof. It means to expose or to show fault. The idea being here is that they're ignorant of their fault. They don't know that there's something wrong here. They don't know that there's sin going on. They're not aware. And so you expose it. You, you point it out to them. And that's not where it ends. You don't just point it out to them and say, you should be ashamed and walk away. You expose the shame so that you can cover it with the grace of Jesus. So that you can apply the gospel rightly and they can be made whole. That's why you reprove. And he says God's word is good for that. He said it in the, the past sermon. The word of God is, it is, it is effective for reproof. You do that, Timothy. You need to do that. You need to show people where their sin is and you need to apply the gospel to it. He says reproof. Then he also says rebuke. This is one that we maybe hear a little bit more than reprove. The English word for rebuke, where that comes from, the, the word picture from the, the roots of that word is literally beating back with a stick. That's, that's where the English word comes from. The idea of like a, a wayward animal that you're just smacking them to get them back where they ought to be. Now, that's the English word, and that's a little bit harsh, but the Greek word here that we translate rebuke has some similarities, and it's, it's, a, it's a good word that we use rebuke. The Greek word means to order, to either give a command to order or to bring into order. In both of those pictures, something is not where it's supposed to be. This animal, this person, they're off the good path. And by whatever means necessary, by, by authoritative force if necessary, get them to go back on the right path. Rebuke them. Another word for the, uh, the English word for rebuke is repel. Impel them. Move them back to where they ought to be out of love. Bring them back into order. Back onto the safe path. This is, again, this is not just rolling down your window and heaving a drive-by rebuke to someone, an insult, and telling them how wrong they are and that they need to repent and driving away. This is also done out of love. You're wielding the scriptures. You're wielding the word of God. He doesn't rebuke this way. You don't rebuke this way either. You rebuke in order to see them brought back into wholeness. And then this last one he says is exhort. Reprove, show them their faults cover it with the gospel, rebuke, get them back to where they need to be, exhort, to encourage or to stimulate. This word means to, to come alongside or to call to your side. The idea being here is, okay, now they're, they're on the path, but they're languishing, they're tempted, they're weak, they're feeble, there's something wrong, they need you to put your hand on their shoulder, to put their hand on their back and help them along, to fan them further into flame. They need exhortation. And he says, Timothy, do that with your words, with the words of God. And to all those with complete patience, 
Timothy, preaching in all of its forms is going to test your patience. You need complete patience. You can also read there, perfect patience. Who has perfect patience? Jesus alone. You, Timothy, you need Christ-like patience. More than you're capable of. Baked into this is you need to rely on the Spirit to get any of this word work done, Timothy. So again, Paul's talking to Timothy, but I hope you hear him talking to you as well. What is your ministry? We know that it's difficult, but it's going to be unpopular in this world. It's also heavily defined by the Word of God. It's word work. What is the work that's in front of you? What is your ministry? Your ministry is the service that God has called you to based on who he's made you to be. In this structure, this chiastic structure, in the second part where we are now, Paul connects his life in ministry, his whole life as an apostle, all the work that he's done. He connects that through the chiasm to this charge to Timothy to do word work. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In what way has he kept the faith? What did Paul do? What was his whole thing? Preaching the word of God, establishing churches when people turn and trust in the Lord, and then doing it again, raising up disciples, raising up elders, and doing it again. Word work, bringing the words of God to bear on people's lives and watching it transform them, developing them through the word, and going and doing it again. That's all he did, and he said, I have kept the faith. The reason he's saying all of this the reason he's giving this charge to Timothy to fulfill this word work is that he's done all he, has, he can. His opportunities to preach are coming to an end. He's saying, I fulfilled my word work. I fulfilled my ministry of God's word, Timothy. I'm almost out of opportunities to do that. You have to do the same. You must do the same. Most importantly, because of who it is who's called you to do this, but also because... I won't be around anymore to do it. It has to be you. Someone has to take this torch and run with it, Timothy. You must do this. And those two reasons for commanding this to Timothy, one is a lot more important than the other. And the calling of who is calling Timothy is what defines and capstones this charge. Let's look at this third thing that, that Paul says. The work of a minister of Jesus is. In the beginning and the end, he says, this is sure work. We've seen the meat of this passage, the, the charge, the difficult things, the difficult encouragement, the practical stuff for Timothy. That was here at the tip of the chiasm, but now let's look at the binding of the book. What is the wrapping? What is the, the structure that this whole thing is sitting under? The front cover of this section of commands and urging to Timothy. The thing he wants to start and end with is this. We saw that preach the word is the charge, but this is the grounds for the charge. Let's read it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Paul had a strong father-son relationship with Timothy, and he could have called him to action based on that relationship alone. Timothy, you've got to do it. You've got to carry it on. I'm not going to be here. But that's not what he grounds it in. He grounds it in this way. He says, I charge you. The NASB would have it. I solemnly charge you. And I think that's, 
That's, that's a good translation from the emphatic word that we see in the Greek here. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, preach the word. Paul anchors this charge, not in anything practical, but in God himself, who he is, what he's done, and most importantly for this passage, what he has promised to do. Let me ask you, as Paul gives this solemn charge, it's almost oath-taking language. He's taking this oath, and he says, in the presence of God. Let me ask you, think back on your knowledge of Scripture. Who or what can stand in the presence of God, the full, unshielded presence of God, the fiery presence of God? Who or what can stand? I'll tell you what, nothing unclean, nothing sinful, nothing abominable, no sinful motivations, no hidden agendas, no deceitful men of unclean lips are allowed to stay there. Isaiah 33, 14 says this, who can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? That's the presence of God, like a consuming fire. Who can stand there? Who can dwell there? And they say, only the one who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Friends, that's not me. That's not you. That's the Lord Jesus alone. But Paul is saying, my motivations for this charge, my motivations for this charge are in line with the one who speaks uprightly, the one who walks righteously. My motivations for this charge are as pure as Jesus' motivations for this charge. I could stand in the throne room of God in his fiery presence and give you this charge, and the Father would say amen. Timothy. Jesus gave warnings about giving oaths flippantly and swearing by God. Paul understands that. He is not taking this lightly. He knows what he's saying, and he's not done saying it yet. He says, and I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So at the same time, Paul is saying, Jesus, the judge. He's calling up Jesus, his status as the judge. He's saying, Jesus knows the depths of my heart here. He knows my motivations. And he supports me in this charge to you, Timothy. But he's also saying, this is who Jesus is. He is not just a rabbi. He is not just a good teacher. He's not just a man who had some good ideas about how to live. No, he is the righteous judge who will take his seat at the end of all things and bring the whole universe into order. Timothy, that is who this message is about. And I charge you by his appearing. And I charge you by his kingdom. Again, Paul is thrusting our minds forward into the future as he begins this charge. He says, his appearing. That is the blessed day when Jesus returns on the clouds riding a white horse with a single word from his mouth. He undoes. He completely cuts down Satan, all his legions, and all the enemies of God. Destroyed eternally and establishes the kingdom of the Lord forever and ever. Paul is saying, because that glorious future is what will come to pass. You must preach. You must fulfill your ministry. It will not always be fun. You will face opposition. You will toil in the sun, casting seed on hard ground. And sometimes it will seem like your harvest is very small. And maybe you should quit. But you must preach. You must fulfill the ministry that the Lord has called you to by nature of who he's made you to be. What has he put in front of you? That's your ministry. Because this glorious future is surely coming. That is what you must do. So help me God. 
Paul uses that glorious vision to show how weighty it is, that the need to preach. But it's not all solemnity and seriousness. In his structure, he ties his closing back to that same glorious opening. It's also sweet and joyful and warm. In verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who has loved his appearing. He starts and ends with a reminder of the future that Jesus will bring. He says, there's a crown waiting for me. Don't need to worry about me, Timothy. There's a crown waiting for me. That crown is the Stephanos, the, the Greek victor's crown awarded to the winner of the race. This ties back with his language about running the race with diligence, obeying the rules of the race and running hard. This is where you do need the good theology that's found elsewhere in Scripture to understand what Paul's saying here. And Timothy had a decent amount of the New Testament in his hand at this point. In fact, he wrote alongside Paul. He co-wrote several of the major epistles alongside him. He understood that Paul was not saying that he earned the victor's crown by his own righteous living, by his own good deeds and works of service. No, he understands that Paul is saying that the victory was found in Christ's victory over Paul's sin. So he was then freed, freed up to run this race with all his might, to preach his heart out, to preach in the most out-of-season ways, to preach when he knows it will get him killed. He was freed up to run this race with all that he had because the crown was already waiting for him. And he knew it crown of victory is waiting, what does he say? Not just for super apostles, not just for Paul, but for everyone who loves the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Everyone who is anxiously awaiting that day and living like they're anxiously awaiting that day. The same Lord who ensures, guarantees your future victory has called you to something. He has called you to radical, present ministry in the Word, and we must fulfill it. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.